0: Hi, this is Leon Nafok. You're listening to the Audible original podcast, Fiasco, The AIDS Crisis. I'm here to tell you that there is a new season of Fiasco coming soon to Audible. It's a series about the 1984 shooting of four black teenagers on the New York City subway by a white man who thought he was about to be robbed. The incident turned the shooter into a symbol of vigilante justice and forced a national reckoning over crime, fear, and racism. Fiasco, Vigilante, will be available on July 27th, only from Audible. Visit audible.com slash fiasco to learn more and sign up for your free trial. Fiasco is intended for mature audiences. For a list of books, articles, and documentaries we used in our research, follow the link in the show notes. Previously on Fiasco...
1: Our main job was to try and develop drugs that could
2: treat this devastating disease. The FDA announced today it would formally
1: streamline its drug approval process. This thing of hoping for like a magic bullet that, you know, we would all be activists for two or three years and then the cure would come, the vaccine would come, and we would all go back to our lives. Wasn't going to happen. People need medication
0: now. Ten years from now, they'll be dead. When the virus that causes AIDS was isolated in 1983, it looked kind of like a time bomb. HIV could eat away at someone's immune system for months or years before they experienced any serious symptoms. Then, one day, pretty much any infection could become fatal. In 1987, a young chemist at the pharmaceutical company Merck came up with an idea for how to disable the bomb. His name was Irving Siegel.
3: What Siegel took on was really an impossible task. No pharmaceutical scientist had ever really taken on such a challenge as this.
0: David France is the author of the book How to Survive a Plague and the director of the documentary film by the same name. During the height of the epidemic, France was an activist and a journalist who covered the search for AIDS treatments. He says that after the release of the first AIDS drug, AZT, many drug companies scrambled to produce knockoffs.
3: When AZT had come out in 87, it immediately proved that there was a massive and very financially rewarding market for drug companies to exploit. But as you've heard, AZT was not a
0: miracle drug. Even when AZT seemed to make someone better at first, the virus rapidly mutated inside their body which meant that eventually, almost everyone who took it still developed AIDS. Irving Siegel, the scientist at Merck, was convinced he could build something better than AZT, a new class of drug that would attack HIV in a totally different way.
3: Irving Siegel was young, he was charismatic, he pulled together a team of very excited researchers And the very first thing that he focused on was a very novel approach. No one else was taking it. And that was an approach to look at protease inhibitors.
0: Maybe you've heard that phrase before, protease inhibitors. I definitely had, but I also did not know what a protease was or what it meant to inhibit it. So, as I've learned, the HIV-1 protease is an enzyme that plays a critical role in allowing the virus to replicate in the body. Siegel believed that the key to treating HIV was stopping the protease from doing its job. After getting some initial buy-in from the higher-ups at Merck, Siegel and his colleague, Nancy Cole, started working on it. And just a few months later, they completed a paper reporting a promising result. By inhibiting the HIV protease, it was possible to stop the virus from replicating at least in the confines of a lab experiment. The quick turnaround was typical of Siegel. His wife Catherine told me he was someone who took the stairs two steps at a time when he came into work and was often moving so fast that he would forget to button his shirts all the way.
4: I remember very clearly saying to myself, I have to keep up with this guy because he's just, he, that's how rapidly he moved, that's how rapidly his, his brain worked too.
0: Emilio Amini is a virologist who worked with Siegel as the head of Merck's efforts on HIV, He was a co-author on that first paper about the HIV protease.
4: You can imagine, you know, a very, you know, thin individual who is constantly moving and whose brain is constantly functioning. It was absolutely extraordinary.
0: By December of 1988, Siegel and his team were on the cusp of a major advance, producing the first 3D image of the protease. After more than a year of intensive work, they finally had a clear understanding of its unique cellular structure. Emilio Amini sometimes compares the HIV protease to a Pac-Man. Double, double,
3: double. Introducing Pac-Man.
0: It has a wedge-like mouth, which it uses to chomp down on HIV proteins and slice them into smaller pieces.
3: You can move it in or out of the maze, or back in as long as you. Double, double, double.
0: These smaller pieces then spawn new HIV proteins throughout the body. Siegel, Amini, and their colleagues at Merck wanted to jam the Pac-Man's mouth, and render it incapable of doing any chomping or slicing. They believed that once this happened, the virus would stop replicating.
4: So if the protease is not functional or if it's rendered non-functional and cannot perform this cutting activity, then the viral proteins that are produced won't be assembled into new viral particles, right? And therefore, the viral infection cycle is terminated.
0: The 3D image of the protease gave Siegel and his colleagues a precise map of the enzyme, showing them where exactly they had to jam it. Now they could move on to the next step, developing a drug, a protease inhibitor, that could be digested by human beings. Siegel was confident that it could be done. But then... Shortly before Christmas, Siegel had to travel to London to deliver a long-scheduled lecture. After three days away from his lab, he was eager to get back. So at the last minute, he decided to change his flight to a red-eye. Pan Am Flight 103 left London on the night of December 21, 1988. Less than an hour after takeoff, the plane exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, killing everyone on board.
2: Just after 7 this evening, a jumbo jet crashed onto the town of Lockerbie in the Scottish borders. It was a Pan-American Boeing 747.
4: I remember very clearly where I was when I got the news. I was at home, actually. It was right before Christmas. It was right before Christmas in 1988.
2: We now know there were 244 people on board, including three children.
0: Irving Siegel was just 35 years old when he died in the Lockerbie bombing.
4: It was absolutely devastating, as you can imagine. It was devastating for what we were doing collectively, it was devastating for the science, it was devastating for the whole field, but more importantly, it was devastating personally for Irving and for his family.
0: Siegel's vision of a protease inhibitor would eventually lead to a massive paradigm shift in AIDS treatment. As part of the so-called triple cocktail, it would unlock the first effective therapy for HIV and AIDS and it would finally make it possible for people who had the disease to survive. But none of that would happen until 1996, nine years after Siegel first saw promise in the HIV protease, and 15 years after the first cases of AIDS were observed in America. It's impossible to say whether an effective treatment might have come sooner if Irving Siegel hadn't changed his flight from London. What's clear enough is that his death was a major setback, one of many in science's long and grueling campaign against AIDS. I'm Leon Nafak. From Audible Originals and Prologue Projects, this is Fiasco.
1: Typically, the stronger the drug, the faster HIV adapts to resist it. It seemed that everything we had done up to that point hadn't been enough.
2: Researchers say a new class of drugs... Or working. Where once there was only desperation, there is now genuine hope. I'm looking forward to a future.
5: The Lazarus effect that people described, it felt like a miracle.
0: In this episode, the darkest days of the AIDS crisis in America, followed at long last by a glimpse of light. By the 1990s, HIV had spread all over the globe.
2: 14 million people in the world are now HIV positive. The number grows dramatically every year.
0: And affected just about every demographic. Still no cure, still no vaccine to prevent it. In the U.S., cases among women and people of color were climbing at a particularly alarming rate. And as the time bomb went off in more and more people, the death totals were rising
3: every year. In this country, 400,000 have gotten AIDS. 240,000 have died. Whatever we've been doing has not been enough. It wasn't until we hit 1993 and 1994 and 1995 that the body counts became extreme. David France again. These were mass dying events each year. 43,000 Americans died in 1993, 50,000 Americans in 1994. So we entered a period of, of real despair. For many AIDS
0: activists, the tragedy wasn't just about how many people were dying during this period.
3: It was also that many of the dead had been leaders in the movement. 1993 opened with the death of Bob Rapsky, who was a key member of ACT UP, one of its kind of poet warriors, Question is, what does a decent society do
2: with people who hurt themselves because they're human, mm-hmm. who smoke too much, who eat too much, who drive carelessly, who don't have safe sex? And the answer? I think the answer is that a decent society does not put people out to pasture and let them die because they've done a human thing.
3: His death was a trauma for the movement and the community. And then by the end of the year, Michael Callan died.
0: You met Michael Callan in our second episode. He was the singer and early AIDS activist who spearheaded a safe sex campaign in New York and helped create a bill of rights for people with AIDS.
2: It's hard to believe Michael Callan is no longer with us. For more than a decade, he made beautiful music and worked tirelessly to improve the quality of life for people with AIDS, all the while fighting the disease himself.
3: Want- Michael Callen was the author of a book on surviving HIV. And if the guy who was a self-proclaimed long-term survivor couldn't survive, then it seemed we were all lost.
1: I realized that some people could look at my life and say, oh, it was so sad, and he died of AIDS, and isn't that tragic? But what I want to come through is
5: that even after all the pain and all the torture, and even having AIDS, I can honestly say being gay is the greatest gift I was ever given. I wouldn't change it for the
0: world. Amid all of this death, more and more activists started to burn out. Garant's Frankie Ruda, who had joined ACT UP as a teenager in the late 80s, was one of them.
5: I think people just had a lot of unprocessed grief and were just really, like, unraveling, honestly.
0: Like many in the movement... Frankie Ruda was exhausted by the lack of progress on medical treatment and by infighting among her fellow activists.
5: All activist organizations have kind of a half-life. They burst onto the scene, they're incredibly vibrant, and then they start to sort of change.
0: The changes ACT UP was going through might have been easier to take if Frankie Ruda wasn't also losing friends to AIDS on a routine basis.
5: A lot of people had been infected and around the same period of time. And there was a sense amongst a lot of people that they were not getting out of this alive. Some people were very pessimistic about whether or not they were going to see the end of uh, the pandemic.
0: The sense of despair deepened in June of 1993 when scientists made a crushing announcement about AZT at the International AIDS Conference in Berlin. Berlin
1: discouraging news today about the effectiveness in some cases of AZT.
0: French and British researchers had conducted the largest study ever on AZT. Their conclusion was that in the long term, the drug simply did not work.
3: Over three years, there was no significant benefit in terms of survival or progression to AIDS.
4: Reading from slides on a big overhead screen, the head of the European study told the delegates Patients infected with HIV who take AZT before they develop symptoms of AIDS are no better off than patients who take it after they come down with the disease.
0: The limits of AZT were already well-known. But according to the new study, the drug didn't extend life for people with AIDS by a single day. In fact, patients in the placebo group actually lived a little longer. After the conference... The Washington Post described it as the most depressing moment in AIDS treatment history. Mark Harrington, the ACT UP member you first met in our previous episode, was in Berlin at the time of the AZT announcement.
1: I think at that point it was pretty universally felt that we were all doomed and that anybody that had HIV was going to die. Uh, we're not going to be changing the field fast enough to to save our lives or the lives of most of our friends that had HIV and most of the other millions and millions of people that had HIV. So it, it seemed that everything we had done up to that point hadn't been enough.
0: Three weeks after the conference in Berlin, a group of AIDS activists channeled their sorrow into a protest in Washington.
4: The to your door. We won't take it anymore! Bring the dead.
3: It was a new kind of protest known as a political funeral. It got to the point where the community started this campaign to show our deaths, to show what AIDS looked like. And the most dramatic way that that happened was through political funerals, in which the corpses of the fallen comrades were taken out into the streets and displayed in, in these, these really heartbreaking expressions of anger and rage
0: The point of political funerals was to force an awareness of the death toll from AIDS onto those who might otherwise find it easy to look away. Mark Harrington says that activists didn't want AIDS to be a private epidemic. We
1: wanted the American people to see the cost, to see the the lives that were being lost, and to be made aware by us putting it into their faces that the people that were dying were loved and were valued members of our society. And so this was a sign of desperation, of despair, but also a beautiful sign of solidarity.
0: It was the summer of 1993 when an ACT UP member with AIDS named Tim Bailey took a turn for the worse. As he lay dying, Bailey told his friends that he wanted his body thrown over the White House gate. It would be a nod to an ACT UP protest held the previous year when more than a dozen activists poured out the ashes of their loved ones onto the White House lawn.
2: We're here today to
4: bring home to George Bush
5: the results of this murderous inaction.
0: Tim Bailey's idea to have people throw his actual body onto the lawn was a little more extreme, and his friends demurred. But they promised him they would do something in front of the White House. On July 1st, 1993, a few days after Bailey died, his friends drove his body from a funeral home in New Jersey to Washington, D.C.
3: This was carried out like a military operation. They rented a van, uh, and they called upon ACT UP members around the country to meet them in Washington.
0: The plan was to meet up at the Capitol Reflecting Pool— then marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in a procession but by the time the activists van pulled into a parking lot near the capitol the authorities were already there some were wearing riot gear
4: this is this is the last wishes it's in the
2: will there are legal permits there are family members here you're going to you're going to interfere with a funeral procession in front of all this press
3: it was a showdown of remarkable tension and anger there was rage and tears coming from the protesters who felt that they owed it to Tim Bailey to be able to accomplish what he had asked for
2: Easy, that's Easy. That's Tim. and,
3: and yet they were being blocked
1: this is a
0: According to one witness, a federal agent at one point reached into the van holding Bailey's casket and snatched the keys from the driver. Activists surrounded the van and sat down so it couldn't be driven away. After a tense standoff that lasted several hours, they flung open the back doors and forced the casket out.
3: But the pushback from this phalanx of police officers was such that the, the the whole casket nearly fell over and nearly emptied itself in the parking lot.
0: Eventually, the activists regained control of Bailey's casket and managed to get it back into the van. The police then surrounded the van and escorted it onto the highway back towards
3: New Jersey. The escort lasted into Maryland, uh, to Baltimore, and Tim's body was returned ultimately to the funeral home, and he was given uh, a, a regular burial after that. By
0: 1993, activists weren't the only ones losing hope. Scientists were also beginning to doubt whether an effective treatment for HIV was possible. AZT-like drugs had proven ineffective. And while Merck was putting its energy behind protease inhibitors, there was no guarantee that those would work either. Here again is Emilio Amini, the virologist who ran Merck's HIV efforts.
4: What was in everyone's back of everyone's you know, mind was, well, maybe every single drug we develop against this virus, or even an inhibitor of the protease, maybe the virus can very quickly defeat it by simply becoming resistant, quickly.
0: Thanks to Irving Siegel and his colleagues, Merck had been early on protease research. But in the years after Siegel's death, progress had been slow. It wasn't just because Siegel wasn't there to help. Everyone I spoke to said his team continued working on protease inhibitors with the same urgency as before. It was just that making a functional drug out of Siegel's idea was extremely hard. Here's David
3: France again. It was the most complex pharmaceutical production ever undertaken, to create this molecule took 14 painstaking steps, each one very time-consuming, each one depended on the one before it. The idea that, that this would work was certainly far from reliable. The drug that
0: Merck was working on would eventually be called Crixivan. The scientist in charge of producing it happened to also be a chef and in an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer, he explained that making Crixivan was like cooking an intricate multi-course meal for a thousand people. If you wrote the recipe for Crixivan, he said, each of the 14 steps would cover 60 pages. The effort seemed to be paying off. Crixivan worked extremely well in lab trials. So well that according to David France, the team at Merck
3: did something pretty unusual. As Merck and the uh, HIV team were getting more and more excited about Crixivan from what they saw in laboratories, uh, they wanted to push the thing into human um, trials very quickly. And they had such faith that it would work that they they did something that uh, is, is not done in pharmaceutical research.
0: Typically, after successful lab trials, pharma companies test their drugs on healthy animals to make sure the drugs aren't toxic and can be absorbed into the bloodstream.
3: According to France's reporting, Merck skipped the animal trial, sort of. What they did instead was they tested it among the scientists. They 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 took it themselves. And so they knew that it was safe because they all survived the exposure to it. And it's something that is often joked about in the pharmaceutical world as a big chimp study in which the big chimp is the scientist himself. We
0: asked Emilio Lomini about the big chimp trial. He declined to comment. I told you a bit ago about the devastating AZT announcement in Berlin. It was about six months later that Merck ran a trial of Crixivan in a group of people who were all HIV positive. A week into the study, each patient's viral load fell dramatically. Crixivan appeared to work, at least in the short run.
4: What we initially saw was that there was, in fact, very clear and rapid decline of virus load in those individuals. And this was the first time that was foreseen with any drug, you know, for, for, for HIV. So it gave us a sort of a glimmer of hope that, you know, we have, a, you know, something potentially useful here, right? You know, we felt, well, maybe there's something special about the protease. Maybe there's something special that the virus cannot rapidly become resistant to this class of drugs. And so we were encouraged.
0: The question was, would the virus find a way to mutate around the drug like it had with AZT? The researchers at Merck were optimistic enough that they had shared their preliminary results with other AIDS researchers. But soon, their hopes were dashed. Once again, HIV had mutated and effectively become resistant to the new drug.
4: So if if we go back to the Pac-Man analogy and you consider the protease inhibitor as being a, a something, a ball, a rock, a, whatever you want to call it, that gets in the mouth of the Pac-Man so that the Pac-Man can no longer, you know, close its mouth and chomp up the viral proteins. What the mutation does is that the mutation alters the structure of the Pac-Man's mouth just ever so slightly, but alters it enough so that the inhibitor can't bind into that mouth anymore.
3: And the one who cobbles up most wins.
0: Just to make sure you got that, the mutation occurred right in the Pac Man's mouth. Now, the protease inhibitor that Merck had spent years developing and fine tuning didn't fit properly. And so the Pac Man, the protease, went right back to chomping and slicing HIV proteins and enabling them to replicate in patients' bodies. HIV was rebounding in Merck's study participants, and it was happening extremely fast.
4: By that time, we we had a good feel for this. We already knew that what we were looking at here was resistance selection. It was harder, it was harder for the virus to become resistant against the protease inhibitor, but it wasn't that hard.
0: HIV was the ultimate Darwinian nightmare. It seemed to evolve around every obstacle put in its path after years of effort and hundreds of millions of dollars spent, Merck's new drug appeared to be meeting the fate of every other HIV treatment. The disappointment of Crixivan didn't mean that protease inhibitors in general would never work, or that a different drug based on the same idea wouldn't produce different results. In fact, in the early 90s, Several pharmaceutical companies other than Merck were attempting to develop their own protease inhibitors. In May of 1994, a company called Hoffman-Laroche became the first of Merck's rivals to put a protease inhibitor in front of the FDA. A new drug called the most important advance since AZT. The drug was called sequinavir. Sequinavir, the first of a new generation of AIDS-fighting drugs. Hoffman-Laroche was asking the FDA for accelerated approval which was exciting news for AIDS activists and patients across the country. Merck's protease inhibitor hadn't panned out, but maybe Hoffman-La Roche's version would turn out to be the real deal.
1: Researchers caution
4: against too much optimism, but it is the most powerful weapon yet developed against the AIDS
0: virus. There was, however, a surprising hitch in the company's plan to get sequinavir to market quickly. A small but influential group of former ACT UP members was standing in the way. They called themselves the Treatment Action Group, or TAG for short. TAG included many of the science-oriented activists from ACT UP, including Mark Harrington. As you heard in our previous episode, Harrington and some of his colleagues had split off from ACT UP, in part because they wanted to work with government officials, not just antagonize them. By 1994, TAG was in regular contact with the FDA— and one of its members served on the agency's official advisory board. As the FDA considered the possibility of early approval for sequinivir, the activists in TAG made it known that they were against it. I asked Harrington to explain their thinking. So TAG opposed fast-tracking the drug, and I think as we tell our listeners about that, that their first instinct will be to say, wait a second, I thought these guys wanted to fast-track the drugs, what happened?
1: Berlin happened.
0: After the conference in Berlin, where it was revealed just how much of a failure AZT was, Harrington had come to view the drug as a cautionary tale. Years earlier, AZT had been fast-tracked and given the benefit of the doubt. Now, the pitfalls of moving too fast were all too clear.
1: We recognized that some of the things that we'd done to change clinical trials had led to false answers that weren't accurate. We found out that the Fast-tracking for drugs resulted in some drugs that didn't work being released onto the market.
0: Harrington felt that he and his fellow activists had been naive. For years, they had agitated for drugs to be released as quickly as possible to people with AIDS, on the theory that anything was better than nothing.
1: And we had gotten the scientists and the regulators to also be naive. Everyone was tired of all the deaths and all the sick people and the lack of hope. Everyone wanted these drugs to work, but just wishing doesn't
0: make it so. Sequinivir, the protease inhibitor developed by Merck's rival, Hoffman-Laroche, struck the members of TAG as yet another source of false hope. Among other things, Harrington was alarmed by the way Hoffman-Laroche had conducted its trials.
1: They did a little study in fewer than 300 people, and in summer of '90. Four, they wanted to FDA to give it accelerated approval. And we said, no, this is 300 people. You want to do the first of a new generation of AIDS drugs with a shitty inadequate sample size that's far too low to tell us even if there's a f- side effects, let alone whether the drug works. And you need to redraw your whole clinical development plan from scratch.
0: From Tag's perspective, if sequinavir were approved hastily, it had a good chance of dominating the market for protease inhibitors. That was what had happened with AZT after the FDA fast-tracked approval of that drug back in 1987. David France
3: explains. They did not want an AZT-like scenario to take place. sequinivir was probably the least promising of the protease inhibitors. And yet, if it had gotten to market before anybody else, they worried that it would, you know, take all the oxygen out of the air for the other developed compounds
0: TAG demanded that Hoffman LaRoche go back to the drawing board and dramatically expand the trial size for sequinivir. They proposed 18,000 participants, a 60-fold increase from the original study. Hoffman LaRoche executives weren't exactly pleased to hear this. And to gin up support for their fast-track application, they faxed TAG's proposal to a bunch of other AIDS activist groups across the country. When those activists
3: learned about TAG's opposition, Many of them were outraged. When TAG went their own way, they stepped on a lot of feet. In fact, they stepped on just about every foot in the movement. AIDS activists had never before this point tried to slow down a drug to market, and it created an amazing shitstorm in the activist community.
0: Dozens of AIDS groups signed a statement registering their disagreement with TAG over sequenivir. But TAG, by this point, had built up a lot of sway with the FDA, and hoffman LaRoche's application was rejected.
1: The controversy was fast and furious between libertarian activists who really thought people should just take anything they want, and then kind of more rigorous activists who thought we needed better data before approving drugs that were going to be taken by hundreds of thousands of Americans and millions of people around the world. People from the community were yelling at each other and calling each other killers and murderers and, and so on.
0: TAG made it clear that they were not just singling out Hoffman-Laroche. They wanted every drug company working on protease inhibitors to take their time, to run large, rigorous trials that would yield rich, clean data. Other activists stuck with what they had been saying for years, that people with AIDS didn't have time to wait. Wait. Back at Merck, Emilio Amini and his colleagues were continuing to track the participants of their protease inhibitor trial. Remember, they had seen their virus levels plummet in the first week of using Crixivan. And then, like clockwork, the numbers had shot back up in all of them. All of them except one. Patient number 142. for some reason, that patient's viral load remained nearly undetectable. Not just at first, but for months afterwards.
4: And that one patient, for reasons that to this day are never, never been really understood, that one patient, the virus level came down, but never came back up again. And this was the first time any patient, as far as we knew, that had been treated with an HIV inhibitor had actually demonstrated the ability for prolonged virus suppression. And we kept following that patient and never came back up and just stayed down.
0: Amini and his colleagues didn't just write this off as an anomaly. The data was real, and patient 142 wasn't some kind of superhuman.
4: And what we said to ourselves was, well, the fact that it happened in one patient doesn't tell us that, you know, we have a high probability that we're going to be able to do this, you know, in everybody. But you know what it does tell us? It tells us for the first time that it's actually possible
0: to do it. Patient 142 became Merck's North Star.
4: In fact, various members of the team had mouse pads actually made up that actually showed the virus load in this one individual. It's, it's, it was a way of saying to ourselves, look, we actually did it now. What we now need to figure out is how do we do it in everybody?
0: Emini and his colleagues followed their small phase one study with a much bigger phase two trial that would track thousands of subjects over many months. Even just producing enough drugs for a study that big was a challenge.
4: The process of making the drug was not trivial. It would require the establishment of literally a brand new you know, chemical manufacturing facility. Uh, one of the steps was an extreme exotherm, which is a way of saying that it was an explosive step, that if you didn't do it carefully, it would blow up your factory,
0: literally. While the trial got underway, Amini and his colleagues began testing out different doses of Crixivan on patients. They also tested the drug in combination with other kinds of drugs including AZT. That was a relatively new idea, meant to address HIV's ability to rapidly mutate around pretty much every drug researchers had
3: thrown at it. A thought occurred to scientists, and it was simultaneously in multiple labs, that it's simply a matter of math, that two drugs is better at preventing the virus from mutating in ways that will escape the drug treatment Emilio Amini was one of the scientists
0: who'd helped make this discovery. That so-called combination therapy was more effective than using a single drug. Before protease inhibitors were developed, there had only been two classes of drugs to try in combination with each other, AZT and one other. Now there were three. Each one would attack HIV in its own way and essentially back the virus into a corner
3: until it could no longer mutate its way out. People wanted to try a third drug and to see if attacking the HIV virus in three different ways would indeed uh, flummox the HIV to the point of being able to actually produce lasting results. A group of patients were given
0: Crixivan along with AZT and the other drug. The early results were remarkable. And by the end of 1995, Amini and his colleagues at Merck were ready to tell the world about what they were seeing.
2: There's a major new reason for hope in the fight against AIDS tonight. Researchers at an AIDS conference in Washington say a new class of drugs are working.
0: On January 30th, 1996, Amini was in Washington, D.C. to address the annual conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections. There, he delivered some major news.
2: Studies presented at the conference show that over a six-month period, the drug sharply reduced the level of virus in the body. Also over a six-month period, people taking the drugs died at half the rate of people not taking the drugs.
0: Crixivan, combined with the two other drugs, had made HIV undetectable in most patients. And the effect didn't appear to be temporary. At the time of the conference, it had persisted for six whole months. Audience members gasped at the data. For the first time since the AIDS epidemic began, a treatment was having a lasting impact. The three-drug combination was working. After all those years of disappointment, AZT did end up being part of an effective therapy. But the development of protease inhibitors had made the crucial difference. By March, Crixivan and two other protease inhibitors had been approved by the FDA. They were the fastest approved drugs in the agency's history.
4: I'd be lying if I didn't say it It wasn't emotionally and, you know, personally very satisfying. And what was most gratifying was not just looking at the virus load, but it was clear that as soon as the drugs became available and started to be used, you know, appropriately as a combination from the very beginning, that the impact it was having on progression to AIDS was just extraordinary.
0: The three-drug combination became known as the triple cocktail. It came with difficult side effects and a huge price tag, upwards of $15,000 a year. Still, many people were able to obtain it through their health insurance or through the federally funded AIDS Drug Assistance Program. That summer, Mark Harrington began taking the triple cocktail and experienced an almost immediate change.
1: My viral load went from over 200000 to nothing over the next three months. And it's been either very low or undetectable in the 25 years since. And none of us could really believe it at first. It was too good to be true. But the truth was that these drugs really did stop the progression of HIV.
2: Nobody is proclaiming a cure for AIDS yet, but based on the results with the new drug combination, many people are starting to believe it may soon be a possibility.
0: Harrington's friend and fellow activist, Garance Frankie Ruda had joined the movement at the tail end of the Reagan administration. By 1996, she had scaled back her involvement and had enrolled in college, hoping to become a doctor. She still remembers where she was when she heard the triple cocktail was working.
5: I was in New York that summer, and I remember talking to folks and sort of getting the news. And just, like, being in this elevator to this crappy little apartment I was sharing with some friends from college, and just, like— feeling like even though I knew it was the work of men and science, it felt like some grand act of mercy made manifest. And I think the Lazarus effect that people described with these medications on people sort of coming off their deathbeds and coming back to life gives you a sense also that even the scientists and the doctors I had to take recourse in biblical and religious language to describe what happened because it felt like a miracle.
2: Where once there was only desperation, there is now genuine hope. I started gaining weight and and little aches and pains and, and problems that I have in my body start resolving and, and sort of like everything went back to normal.
4: And now I feel that uh, I have a great potential to live a, a much longer lifespan than was originally thought when I was first diagnosed in 1987. And I look forward to being here for my daughter's graduation next year from college. I have a 14-month-old grandbaby that I, you know, so I'm looking forward to a future.
0: The opportunistic infections disappeared. Emaciated people began gaining weight again. The so-called AIDS wards in America's hospitals emptied out and closed down. In New York City, which
2: has the most AIDS cases in the country, the death rate from AIDS dropped almost half, from 19 a day last January to 11 a day in July. Across the country, hospitals are seeing fewer AIDS patients and fewer deaths.
1: When I found out that they were working for me, and they were also working for other people that had started them, I could exhale, you know? I could say, okay. Okay, we can move on now. We have got to this point. 1996 was a watershed year in AIDS. It was the first year, the first time, that treatment actually outpaced the virus. And the first time in 15 years of the pandemic, we had something that we could offer to anybody with HIV or AIDS that could keep them healthy if they had HIV or that could reverse their AIDS and save their life if they had AIDS. And it was truly unbelievable, and yet it was true.
0: With that, a new era in the history of AIDS began. But the nightmare wasn't over yet. Not even close. On next week's season finale, why the HIV-AIDS epidemic persisted after the development of the triple cocktail, and why it continues to this day.
3: Anytime you're talking about uh, sex and drugs, it's a moral issue, rather than a public health issue.
0: Fiasco is presented by Audible Originals and Prologue Projects. The show is produced by Andrew Parsons, Sam Graham-Felson, Madeline Kaplan, Ula Culpa, and me. Leon Nafak. Our researcher is Francis Carr. Editorial support from Jessica Miller and Noor Wazwaz. Archival research by Michelle Sullivan. This season's music is composed by Edith Mudge. Additional music by Nick Sylvester of God Mode, Joel St. Julian, and Dan English, Noah Hecht, and Joe Valley. Our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Our credits song this week is Philosophers by Peter Sandberg. Music licensing courtesy of Anthony Roman. Audio mix by Erica Wong, with additional support from Selena Urabe. Our artwork is designed by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. David Blum is the editor in chief of Audible Originals. Mike Charzuk is the vice president of Audible Studios. Zach Ross is head of acquisition and development for Audible. Thanks to Peter Yassi, Nancy Cole, Elliot Siegel, and Catherine Siegel. Thanks to you for listening. Come back next week for the final episode of our season.